Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Mr. Jake Jacobs, uh, who uh, was just telling me before we came on that he's the author of three books and a contributor to nine uh, in total. Um, and the book I've read uh, uh, is Leverage Change, Eight Ways to Achieve Faster, Easier, Better Results. Um, so it's a great pleasure to have you on the show, Jake. Thank you, Richard. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, and I should say you're an enthusiastic learner. Yes, yes, we did. Learner. We did mention that. Yeah, which is which is quite true. Which is quite true. I'm often uh, if I'm not reading a book, I'm taking a program online, and uh, I get teased about this by my uh, uh, partner and significant other. She's like, "You're always learning something," and I admit, yes, sheepishly, yes, this is true. I, uh, I, I'm, I, I have the disease, and I'm not trying to manage it. Very good. And we'll get into what you can teach us uh, from this book. But maybe I, maybe ah, I should begin there, by asking, the what, 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 did you, um, what did you learn in writing, writing this book, um, Leverage Change? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what happened is it, 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 uh, it's a compilation, really, synthesis, distillation, whatever, of 35 years of my work. And um, what I learned in writing it, because there's 44 stories in it, and um, it, it reaffirmed the way I go about my business. Um, getting those stories and writing them up. I, I, I was on a, a book club, which was really cool the other night. Um, there was a pop-up book club that they, they just have and they invite people to it. And so there were about a dozen people and they, um, they said to me, you know, have you ever failed? I didn't see any failure stories in the book. And, I had a mentor who who uh, had had a business partner, and she said, she, you know, he said, you you never failed, but you move the target a lot. And so, I I read those stories and I thought, you know, you're right. None of those are failures, and and they are in some cases about moving the target. It's about what can you accomplish. Now, sometimes you can't accomplish what you set out to, and sometimes that's not even the right thing to accomplish. As you go along, you learn. So the leverage change book is really about success. It's really about that subtitle of achieving faster, easier, better results. And what I learned in writing it is these are good lessons. These are good levers or strategic actions to take. They do work. And that as you're moving along, what they do is they help you. Even if you're having trouble going down a particular path, you've got a lever that says design it yourself. And that gives you the permission and, and, and really the responsibility to shift course, right? Mm. So the levers themselves help you be successful no matter what path you're going down. And, and I think I, I really reaffirmed what is it that I've been doing for 35 years and, and why, at the end of the day, why does it work, Richard, is really what I learned. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so, so what, what are these levers and, and why is it that they're, yeah, they're effective? That's great. We can. We can get in into that, but and I suppose yes. Yeah, so for me, what's interesting is why why that metaphor that you know the idea of of the lever ah. and achieving and did that did that like come to you as you're writing it or has it been a kind of metaphor right. throughout your career? I, 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 yeah, I love this question. So this is video too, right? So people can yeah. see. Yeah. So what uh, what's great about that is there is a picture here behind me, 
Now, this is a chalk drawing that I uh, commissioned. Now, I've never commissioned a piece of art before or since. But 25 years ago, I commissioned this picture, which is a picture of Archimedes. And Archimedes is the one that said, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and single-handed I shall move the world. So this is the concept of how he was describing leverage. And he had a lever in their stories of how he, uh, as an older man, as an older man, they had competitions to move boulders, right, in his time. And the strong young men would get up there and push the boulder until they couldn't. And at that point, Archimedes would take a small stone and put it in front of the boulder and get a long log, long rod, and he would move the boulder. As an older man, he, and he waited until, as the story goes, he waited until nobody else could move it. And then he went up there and very simply did. So I knew that leverage was important 25 years ago in my business and my work with clients, that how do you get more done with less? How can you have small strategic actions that you take with large impact? You know, sort of move the right piece and then dominoes can fall. And I've always been um, uh, intrigued about how does this work in organizations? What are those few strategic actions that will make a big difference? So when I came around to writing this book, I came full circle back to Archimedes because it's something that I believe in deeply. And these eight levers, um, in many cases, are just, they're paradigm shifts. They're, if you can change the way that you're thinking, you can apply this lever. And you know what? Thinking in the real world, it doesn't cost anything. I mean, it costs a new paradigm, but you're not spending money and you're not upping your head count. And so when people say do more with less in organizations, usually these are dirty words, right? Yeah. It means that there's headcount reduction and you're going to get more work and the pressure is going to go up. And see, in a leverage change world, doing more with less is a given. It's what happens when you use these levers. So they're not dirty words. They're accurate descriptions of the benefits that you're going to get. And, and things are going to get easier, faster, right, and better. And when you have that as the outcomes, there's no argument with that. Everybody wants to find out in the world of change how to do that. So that's what the book's really about. Right. And right. the guy who was the inspiration for it. Yeah, that actually, that that helps. And the, particularly the way you frame it, because actually this comes back to your story. So Archimedes is thinking about the problem and, he's, and, he, and through a different thought process, a, a paradigm which includes using a lever and not just his arms, you know, by, do, by, by having that new paradigm and way to think about pushing the boulder with far less effort, he's got an even bigger outcome. Than, than the other guys and yeah and i don't know but that's a somewhat reductive way of looking at it but it but it, it makes total sense now yeah a third yeah. century greek mathematician third century bc greek mathematician was my inspiration for the book <laughs> yeah great great and okay so this is about shifting how we think shifting our paradigm um and you know i i've dived into this you know a lot of it I, you know i loved um, I guess of the eight that you that you lay out here, like 
what do you find which which of the eight do you find yourself using most often in in your work yeah so so um some of them like you hear uh, each of them addresses a problem richard so I, i i've heard eight common problems from clients through the years and, and each lever is designed to address it. And some of the levers like design it yourself. I mean, that deals with a situation where um, you typically have to start with uh, uh, the top of the house and people uh, reject your change approach. They, they, you know, like, they're like, wait a minute, I don't want to do it this way. So design it yourself is, is fairly basic. What it says is, is that they can help plan a new path for your organization. If you get a cross-section of your organization, you design your own change effort. You have the, the right to do it and the responsibility. So you don't have to follow somebody else's prescription, right? The eight steps, the 10 steps. You can use those eight or 10 steps if that's what's right for your organization, but you're not locked into it because somebody said so. So in, in some sense, I think that it's not quite common sense. It's probably, I call it uncommon wisdom that's in the book. But the lever that I think is the most unusual, which I find has the biggest impact for people, is the one that deals with the speed of change. And when you're not happy, when change is happening too slowly, the lever to apply is called think and act as if the future were now. Right. So let me explain to your listeners what this means. Right. Our listeners uh, take some ownership for what we're doing here today. Um, think and act as if the future were not. Now, typically, we think of the future as something that's going to occur at a later point in time. And, and that's logical. Right. I mean, we have to wait for the future to unfold before us. And the problem with this is that if we set our project plans or we have vision 2025, what, what that means is success looks like waiting four years, right, to be able to get our results. So what I do with clients is I say, look, there's a lever here that can radically accelerate the change process. So if you've got a three-year effort mapped out, what I do is I come in and I say, let's do it in 18 months, right? Let's cut the time in half. And people look at me like, what are you talking about? We've thought about this, we've mapped it out, now you're telling us we can get it done at half the time. The reason that I can say that confidently is this lever, because what this lever says is instead of waiting for the future to unfold before us, what we're gonna do is reach out and grab parts of that future and bring it into our present, to think and act as if we were already living in that preferred future. And whatever level or element of that future that you have clear, that's what you can grab. You can tell me, well, we don't have it all figured out. Our vision isn't as clear as we want. And it's like, look, that's okay. Grab some piece of it, bring it into your present. If you say that you wanna have a more participative culture, then start being more participative today. If I had a story where there was a, a group of executives, they were debating the, you know, how to gain uh, uh, traction in this new region around market share. And they spent the morning sort of wrestling about what the answers were. And they had two possibilities. And I said to them, I pulled this lever out at, at lunch. And I said, look, let's say you were more participative 
today. This was not a culture change that you were working on. Who would be in the room for this meeting and who would have full permission to participate and share their thinking? I got up to the flip chart. We just started to add people, right? We got, there were 10 more people. There were people who were salespeople in the region. There were salespeople in regions that had grown recently. All of these people. And I said, all right, in the afternoon, we're going to get these people in the room. And they looked at me and they said, well, some of them are on the road and few of them are in the office. And I said, look, if we, t- if we were to take this seriously, that's one of the lines I love to use with my clients. Like, if we took this seriously, what would we do? And they said, well, we can video patch in this guy. and This guy can come in on the phone and this woman's in the office. We could bring her in. So we came up with ways to get all 10 people engaged in this meeting. And in the afternoon, with permission to share their thinking and the collective wisdom, right, including that leadership team, they didn't choose either of those options. They came up with a third option that was different, better, more comprehensive, had risk mitigation. So if it didn't work, they had ways to deal with it and come back on track. And when they went out to implement this, it worked. They did gain traction in that region around sales, and they did establish themselves as market leaders. So this notion of thinking and acting as if the future were now, you can apply this in a one-on-one meeting that you're going to have with a, a subordinate or a boss, and you can say, what kind of meeting do I want to have? And I want to be clear. I want to be respectful. I want to still be assertive in what I believe. I want to be a good listener and integrate what the person's thinking. Okay, if that's the kind of meeting I want, then how do I need to think and act for that to become my future? And I start to write down that I need to ask questions. I need to write down to be clear about what I believe and to share that in a way that's understandable. I need to, so I start making a list of of my own behavior And if I behave that way, see, the best way to change somebody else's behavior is to change your own. It's sort of like anybody old enough to remember that game of Pong. I don't know, Richard, if you Mm. remember this. This The very beginning when computers were invented, right? I think there were Commodore computers. And the way that you'd play that game of Pong is that this this, uh, ball would hit your racket. And then depending on where you moved your racket, the ball would move differently. Right. So if I get into a pattern where the ball is moving like this, you could get it so that it would repeat. Right. Put your paddle in the right place and you get this repeating predictable pattern of how things are going to move. If you move your paddle, all of a sudden that ball takes a different trajectory and moves differently. So what I'm talking about is going back to the beginning of computers and saying, look, we're going to move our paddle in that meeting. I'm going to choose to behave differently. The way I've behaved has given me the same results over and over with this subordinate or this boss. So if Mm -hmm. I want a different result, I can change my behavior and they will change their behavior and the result will be different because I'm thinking and acting as if I already lived in that future and lived that future today. Now that starts to bring about change. And what happens is it happens faster, right? So as it happens faster, more people get on board because they, you know, the, the people who are on the fence saying, 
you know, I'm not so sure about this. We've tried this before. We haven't succeeded. I got screwed the last time. Like, whatever the problems are, and they look around the organization and they see people behaving differently and getting different results. And they say, look, if it's working for Charlie or Jane or whoever it is that I am working with, then why can't it work with me? And they seem happier because it's getting a better result for them. So why wouldn't I try it? So it starts a snowball, a positive reinforcing cycle where people look around and change is happening faster. And then it just happens even faster as more people get on board. And it's not getting on board saying, yeah, I agree with the change. It's getting on board, changing your behaviors so they're consistent with the way that you want to do business in the future. And that starts a very big snowball. And as that starts to roll, you get the whole organization changing behavior, not because you ordered them to or you compelled them to or you gave bonuses if they do it. It did it because it was a natural process that evolved out of a paradigm shift that costed you nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. And one of the aspects, and you, you kind of answered the question I had in my head when you first introduced it, because the question in my head is, well, okay, well, if you've got a, a very wide ranging change, right, that's going to that's gonna touch many areas, how do you bring all of that into the present right now? But what you said was, no, you bring a piece of it, a piece of it into the present right now. And you can act as if that part of it is true right now. And then, and then, as you say, you, you immediately start signaling to the rest of the organization yeah. that something's happening here. And, and so all of those cynics who are like, oh, you know, we've heard all this before, yeah, you, yeah. you immediately got an answer for them. Yeah. And, and the other thing about cynics is I respect them. I, I, I love the cynics, right? The cynics we call troublemakers. Right now, people have other names for them that we can't talk about on the podcast, but they are the people in meetings who like always have an extra issue or they, you know, get something stopped in its tracks. Uh, they argue they they don't join the cause. Right. And people uh, when they don't join the cause, what happens is people block them. I had I had a client that had some uh, problems. I was working to the executive team. And um, when I interviewed them, everybody to a T, right, said, Charlie's the problem. He doesn't understand what we're doing. He's got different ideas. He doesn't ever get on board. I talked to Charlie. Charlie said Charlie was an issue. He said, look, I'm really frustrated because I come up with ideas and nobody pays attention to them, right? I don't get the respect of my colleagues. I don't even think I'm going to have this job for very long. And I thought, there's some serious work here. So we set up a meeting for the next week. And I came back the next week and I, I, I just casually, as I walked in, I asked a couple of the executive team members, I said, well, how, how are things going? And I was really surprised. They said, things are terrific. And I thought, wow. I've got to figure out what happened here in this week. I got to bottle it and get it out to my other clients because this is a miracle, right? And so I said to these people, I said, well, what is different from last week when you had all these problems? And they said, we don't invite Charlie to the meetings anymore. 
And I and I thought, okay, I'm not bottling this. I'm not taking this forward. This is not a good idea to totally exclude people who you're having trouble with. But troublemakers, right, are in the eye of the beholder. If I see you, Richard, as being a troublemaker, you're going to cause trouble. Yeah. If I choose to see you as a valuable contributor who sees the world differently than me, now you're bringing strategic information to the table that I didn't previously have. If I respect them and they ask a question, rather than dismissing it, I step back and I say, take a breath, right? Settle down, right? This is not a problem from Charlie. He's watching my backside. Of course he cares about the organization. He's not raising this because he's trying to create trouble. He's raising it because he sees things that the rest of us don't see. So if we start to respect Charlie, and I had, I had a situation like this. There was a regional transit company. There was a woman in marketing. She was this close from losing her job. Her name was Mary. And I mean, really close. And we did something, a Myers-Briggs exercise. For your listeners who aren't familiar with Myers-Briggs, it's, it's a temperament sorter and it talks about your preferences. How do you like to gather data and how do you like to get energy things like this well mary was different on all of the dimensions than the rest of the team we had people go to opposite sides of the room for which of these dimensions you know which preference they had and mary was always in the group that had a few people in it but when you put mary's profile together she was different than everybody and once they got this insight, they had a board meeting coming up. And Mary was invited to sit in for the dry run of every one of the other executive team members' presentations because they figured there are some Marys on the board. And of course, yeah. they're right, right? So Mary was so busy that week. I remember sitting in that room with her, and she was like, well, I would say this. You're missing that. I wouldn't bother with this. Now, they didn't take all of her suggestions because they're not all Mary's, but they took some of them and that board meeting went through, they got everything approved. I was at that board meeting and the board chair said, this is the best board meeting we've ever had. And it was because a troublemaker made a valuable contribution and they treated her as a valuable team member. So. This notion of like, we've got to get rid of these people, I think is really flawed. What we got to do is figure out how to tap the innate wisdom that they're bringing and treat them with respect as a, and, and use that information to make decisions. Right. Well, that's, you know, that's a really important point. I guess, the, I guess the challenge in my mind comes, where's that line between somebody who, who thinks differently and by virtue of that is disruptive versus like the quote, toxic individual, you know, the narcissist or the sociopath or whatever that is, is, is just always going to, you know, cause difficulty in relationship. Yeah. And my, my answer to that, Richard, is those people are few and far between. Right. Right. So it, 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 it's, it's like you may have one or two of those in an organization. There aren't, there are no, you know, there are more people in the camp of, I've got a different way of seeing this. Now, of course, you can get to a point where you say the cost benefit on this is not worth it. 
you know, we've tried listening to this person and this person is just obstinate and they don't care about the organization. They care about themselves. They're looking for their own next promotion. And, you know, you eventually get to a point, and this is something that I think every organization and every leader needs to make a decision for themselves. What I'm doing is raising a flag and saying, not so fast, not so fast. Step in, learn from this person, treat him as a team member, and you'll find, I bet you, you find in 90 to 95% of the time, that's the case. It's been my experience in organizations. And those people who don't work out, you know, I, I learned very early. I, I did work at Ford early in my career, and they had a saying, if the people don't change, then the people will change. Right. right. right? Which is yeah. the double entendre, meaning if people yeah. don't change yeah. their behavior, then the people will change who are there behaving. And eventually, yeah, yeah you get to that point. But I, I, I think that you, you've got to give them more than a fair chance because you're not used to seeing the world their way. So it's going to sound a little off. I mean, in some cases, it may sound crazy. What Mary was suggesting in her role as a marketing director, you know, was different than anything they'd ever done before. And mm. people were like, mm. that's, that's not the way we do things. Well, what Mary was doing was something called creativity, right? Yeah. She had new ideas and people couldn't grok them. They just they couldn't make sense of them. And, you know, that's okay. And they came out, Mary, Mary my brother happens to uh, have uh, papers, weekly papers that um, they distribute in the area, right, for free and it's advertising based and they have one in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is where this occurred. Um, and he was in, he saw Mary like five years after I finished working with her. And one of her commitments, they each of the leadership team members had a commitment and Mary's was very simple, right? It, it was easy, but it wasn't simple, right? So it was like hard to do. Well, her commitment, right, was to have a clean desk. Now, for some people, that's like no problem. But for other people, that is like, you know, scaling a 50-foot tree or something. This was not me. Well, Mary stopped my brother and she said, I, I worked with your brother five years ago, and I want you to tell him what my desk looks like right now. Because I made a commitment around my behavior, and I've managed myself for five years and, and people come up and I can find things right away. I don't have to shuffle through stuff. It's made me a more effective executive and it's helped me with my team, right? So even that, when you talk about change, one of the things is speed that people should care about. The other is sustainability. What's the stick factor? I know I talk about Teflon change in the book. And what I'm saying is that, you know, Teflon change says, that it doesn't stick over time, that you find that you make progress in the first month or two or even six months. And like a rubber band, things go back to the way they've been. And you're actually in worse shape because people are even more cynical when something like that happens than if you never tried at all. So the best way to combat that Teflon change is to use these levers. These levers are about sustainability and having sustained changes that five years later, and this is a small example, I can give you bigger examples, but five years later, 
Mary's behavior is still changed. And when you get to the personal patterns of how people behave, that, that in many cases is the hardest thing yeah. to be different because we, you know, we're human and we do things a certain way. I was just listening to a tape, right? One of these online programs that I'm learning from, and he talks about negative loops and how we get into those and how difficult it is for some people to get those into positive reinforcing loops. So, you know, it's not my idea. A lot of people have thought about this and dealt with this. And what I've done is I've taken it and put it into a framework to address it effectively, right? Yeah. How do you get speed and sustainability? Well, use the levers and you can only come out with an outcome of speed and sustainability. You can't avoid achieving those outcomes if you're using these levers. Right. And that's what a new paradigm will do. It will give you something that seems to be impossible. It will give you not just will it be quicker, but it will also be you know, more effective and it will be more sustainable, right? Usually we're thinking in this, this trade-off uh, mentality, but when you shift to a new you know, paradigm, you, you can get everything go up, right? That's what you're talking about. And that's certainly been my experience. I've, when I've tried you know, some, some, some of the levers you, you talk so about. I Richard, I have another story, but I don't know how many questions we have. So I'm no, I don't have a set number. Of, I don't don't have a set number of questions. No, go for it. All right. So one more story about paradigm shifts. Right. I was I was working. I happened to live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, for a number of years. Got a ring. This may not mean as much to your listeners, but that's an M on the ring for the University of Michigan. So okay. I'm a I'm a true go blue guy. But when I was up there, I was working with a group that um, helped women uh, who were working who did not have childcare. And this was their mission. And I met with them for their annual board meeting and they were celebrating because they had broken the um, ceiling on what they had raised to support these women. And I think it was like $150,000 or something like that. And I, they, they were celebrating and the board chair leaned forward and said something that half the group sunk in their chairs and the other half leaned in with like energy and excitement, right? And what she said was, you know, we just broke our record, but if we think about it, right? In our area, there are 2000 kids and they, we need to take care of them for five years till they get into school, right? Zero to five, and then they're in school and that, and then they got care programs in the school. So the women are covered, right? So $2,000, 2,000 people, five years, and it costs $2,000 a year to provide care for these people. So if you do the math on 2,000 times 2,000 times five, the number is like $10 million and they raised 150. <laughs> and she's like, we gotta go after the real problem here. We're not even making a dent in it. So they had to change everything that they thought about and they got to sit at what I would call bigger tables with bigger people, with bigger money. So it opened up doors for them to be able to tap into an entirely different paradigm of people and organizations because now they had a 10 million dollar problem to solve and when you have a 10 million dollar problem to solve you get to sit with other people 
than if you're trying to get a $25,000 contribution to get it to your 150. Yeah. They tripled they tripled the money that they raised the next year because they were thinking and acting as if the future were now and they took on a massive goal. So your behavior has to change when you change your goal. If you say we're going to get something done in 18 months instead of 3 years, you can't make incremental changes. You can't work harder or work faster. You need to reconceptualize how you're going about the work entirely. So all the rules are off the table and creativity comes into play. And in this case for them, they had a whole new ball game. It's like they were playing in the major leagues. In the United States, we have baseball and there's major yeah. leagues or, or the first tier in, in um, the football, right, yeah. in Europe. And, mm-hmm. and they got rele- relegated. They got advanced and promoted to the next league because they had changed their paradigm. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, that makes that makes so much sense. What a what a great story, right? It's uh, yeah, yeah, just just that complete shift in now. This is the game we're playing now. That's what's possible, and and then True and, and that's, every that takes situation. A bit of, yeah, and that takes it. You, you've got to sit in that discomfort because suddenly you don't. Now I don't know how to do this. Like I had some sense of how I might get to a say two hundred thousand. I don't know how I get to te- like I don't know how I get to ten minutes. So that takes something from the individual, doesn't it, to be able to sit in that? Yeah, uncertainty. and if you have a good team, if you have a good team, you just need one person to get that paradigm shift to be able to say, "Hold on." So why do we work in teams? Is that everybody brings something else to the table? But if you do this, think and act as if the future were now, and you know how big the real problem is, then. It's almost an easy thing to say, well, let's go after the bigger problem, the real problem, than trying to get 175 next year. You know, they got 450. Now, that wasn't the solving the problem, but then the next year they also got to play in that major league, in that first tier in the football yeah. leagues. And, and that changed their organization. They became a name to play ball with because they established themselves in that upper league. And, you know, it became a different organization and people changed. Also people got off the board because they weren't yeah. the right people to do that. And they recruited people to join the board. So your team may not always be the right one to do this. Right. And you have to test that. But these people, you know, chose out themselves. They were like, no, I can't do this. This is too big. This is too different. I'm comfortable here. And, and that's fine. They did what they could for the organization. But when the organization shifted, you need to have the right players to play the game that you're in. Yeah. I'm just, I can't remember his name, but it was the fifth Beatle, right? When they, they did their American tour, right? It was just like, I can't do it. I can't, can't leave my family. Right. I can't go, can't go tour America. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That people self-select out. But I also just I'm just thinking from my own experience when I when I took on leading a change initiative for a client, and this was in the realm of agile transformation, right? And and one of the I suppose markers of working in an agile way is this team tend to work with these kanbans, right? These boards where they've got their tasks and they you know they move their tasks along the board. And I can remember you know basically holding the line in the way you're describing and. And I, I just visualized in my head, okay, we've got every team, and this was, you know, when we were all working in offices, 
right? Every team on this floor and the floor below, I've got, I've got Kanbans, right? You know, and that that was like I had it in my head. And I just, it's interesting now because as you describe it, I was doing that. I was. You know, acting yeah. as if the future is now. I was holding that in my head. Yeah. And like, you, you kind of have to deny your reality because I'm in this like heavy bureaucratic environment. Nobody even heard the word Kanban, let alone know what it is. And I'm like, no, no, that is going to happen. <laughs> but that, not only is that, it is like, not just that, that exists now. Like you've got to do that imaginary trick, that power of imagination. And I was able to bring people, you know, along with me. And in that case, it didn't require swapping anywhere out. Everybody did come, come with me. But yeah, I, I could see myself having used that technique you described. Yeah, and the thing about the levers is often people are using them, right, w- without the book. And you know, yeah. I celebrate that. I think that's great. These are, you know, some of these people use on their own. And that's great. What the book is about, and I've got a companion program for the book. It's like a video-based course that you can take and other programs that I've developed to support people in taking uh, this further. But what you find is that some people are using some of the levers, but what I'm interested in is a very conscientious, uh, proactive, uh, uh, strategic use of these levers. And, you know, I did an interview that I included in the book. There's a woman named Jennifer Brown. She does a lot of DEI work. I I, I don't work in that space. I mean, I value people who do, but I don't work in that space. So I interviewed Jennifer about her experience. And I said, look, here are the levers. What I'd like you to do is find one that you think you've been applying naturally in your work. And she had a story, this is fascinating, where she was in an organization and there was an employee resource group that was looking at DEI things, you know, like a special group that that was their job. And what they discovered was that executives, when they made presentations, started out holding a microphone in a large group meeting. And then at some point, often, they'd set the microphone down to like write on a flip chart or something like that, or point something out on a slide, and they didn't go back and pick up the microphone. What they found, right, I I think this is amazing, is that part of the people in the organization were like hard of hearing. Not, Not all of them were wearing hearing aids, but they discovered that there was a group that couldn't hear what the executives were saying once they put that mic down. And this is discrimination, right? And they found this out because there's a a lever called create a common database. And when you create a common database, it's about sharing all of the strategic information. If I have a secret, if I know something that you need to know, I'm keeping a secret from you. And that's not helpful. So I have the responsibility to step out and say, I think this would help Richard. Let me go tell him. Now, it may not help you, but maybe it does. And if it does, that common database has made a difference. If you know something that I should know, now you're keeping a secret. And that's not helpful. So you've got to come to me and say, look, this is something that we're working on. So a lot of projects go like this in organizations. And what we're interested in is having them integrated, having them connected. So if people are going and sharing information that they think is needed by people on other projects, 
That's collaboration. When you don't think that you need to do it, when it's obvious, like, great, that's easy. But it's the points where you don't know whether it's going to make a difference, but you reach out anyway. That's when I think you get bonus points. So they changed this with the executives and they got clip-on microphones. And so they couldn't take them off and everybody could hear. And all it did was change from a holding a mic, a handheld to a clip-on and they solved the problem and then everybody could hear everything. So she was using the lever create a common database naturally in this employee resource group that was looking for discrimination, which, you know, nobody would think necessarily, I wouldn't have come to me, that some people are hard of hearing, but don't get um, hearing aids. It's not as big a deal for them. But when you're in a big room in the back and somebody's talking, you can't hear them. All of a sudden that becomes easy and obvious. And the clip on mic solved the whole problem. Wow. Yeah, I, I love that story. And I tell you, when I read that chapter in the book, it reminded me, I don't know if you're aware of the bank Handelsbanken out of Sweden. I'm not. This will be a good learning yeah. for me. <laughs> right. But they, uh, they uh, consistently <clears throat> achieved highest return on equity you know, in the banking sector. They're um, not their, their, their customer satisfaction schools they knock out of the park. But one of the things they do is they have highly, highly federated organization where each branch has a great deal of autonomy. But one of the, the sort of the rules is if you're a branch operating in the network, you have to make your books com- you know, totally transparent to the rest of the organization. And so what that means is when a particular branch is doing well, a manager or somebody else from another branch can go look at that, all of their data and, well, and figure out, okay, well, what's, what are they doing here and how's that working? And get on the phone and say, well, what is it that you're doing in your branch that, that we could replicate you know, in order to, to improve? And, and, and then vice versa, right? If a branch is suffering, someone can call them up and say, hey, I see your numbers here are you know, going south. Can, can we help? That, that's brilliant. And it's about, can I help? The last thing you said mm. is so important because if you're looking at the whole system, instead of being in competition around your branches, which can happen, um, my, my brother-in-law is a, a branch manager in a bank and, uh, and they don't do this, right? It's set up as competition and his, his bonus, his advancement is based on the performance of his particular branch. But that's, that's not going to be helpful to making your books available, to sharing your best practices, to reaching out and helping. So it doesn't surprise me. I will, I will definitely look into this. And this is, this is a great story that I can tell and thank you for on other podcasts. Yeah, no, no problem. And, and, and cool. yeah, that's in the context of handles, but they don't have, they don't have a bonus culture. Everyone's on a long-term incentive, you, you all, and you're on a long-term incentive plan. So yeah, they don't have that, that problem of competition because they, so they just don't have the, nobody's incentivized to compete in that way. Um, yeah, wonderful. The other thing I wanted to talk about was, was paradox. Uh, and you talk about that early, early in the book and the importance of paradox. And um, I think that's just worth, because I think it's really powerful, a point, you know, that's a, that's a word that people perhaps are less, you know, familiar with. So can you talk about a little bit about, you know, what is a paradox and, and why is it important in change work? Sure. So paradox is something that at its surface seems to have an obvious answer, but when you look deeper the opposite of your answer happens to be true. 
So it's what at the surface appears to be true, when you dig deeper, turns out to not be true. So paradox for me is based on something called polarity thinking, which a buddy of mine, Barry Johnson, has dedicated his career. For 35 years, he's been studying. He calls them polarities, but the same thing, polarities, paradoxes, um, they mean the same thing. And the way that Barry describes paradox or in polarity is that there are two poles that he says they need each other over time. So let me give you some examples. Like, should I focus on the individual or the team? Should I focus on the present or the future? Should I focus on earnings or innovation? And the answer, see, these are trick questions. The answer is yes to all of those. These are not either or choices. They're both and choices. So there's a flawed decision to say, well, we're going to focus on innovation and we're going to let go of making money today. Because what happens is we get poor performance on the poll that we ignore. And then eventually we'll get poor performance on the one that we're paying attention to. So you get into a vicious cycle. So when we translate this into the world of change, what we do is, and I'm a change agent, right? We talk about change. We focus on change. We try to achieve change, right? And what gets ignored is what's not going to change. And it's equally important because there is a polarity of change and continuity. And that's what I call continuity is to keep doing what you're doing. And you see, change brings up anxiety and frustration and fear. So these emotions, right, they're real. We're human beings go along with change. Even if I'm excited about it, it's uncertain. I don't know. Well, continuity, on the other hand, brings about with it confidence, conviction, clarity. We know what we're doing. We've done it before. So emotionally, this helps people deal with change when we pay attention to continuity. But also, there are things that we're going to pay attention to anyway as we go forward. If we don't drop the ball on some things that we've done well because we're focused on change, that's a good thing. So figuring out what you're going to continue doing and making sure that you do a really good job of it. I went into an organization once and they were excellent at their process and their controls in a particular place, and they were going to do some reinvention around agile thinking. And what they did is the whole organization changed to focus on agile thinking. And as it turned out, they dropped the ball on some customer service things that they had done really well in the past because they took their eye off it, right? So that's one problem that you get into. Another problem that you get into is that continuity has that emotional aspect to it. And then a third thing is that when you focus on continuity, you actually do change better. What I've said is if you want radical change, figure out how to create radical continuity. So the paradox is that by paying attention to continuity, you're going to do a better job on change because people are going to have this confidence. They're going to stand when they take the leap into the unknown. They're going to stand on the firm ground of continuity. And I'm also, I want to make a point. I'm not arguing that everything from the past gets brought forward. Some things you need to leave and let go of. But the things that you need to pay attention to when leaders get up and start talking 
in town hall meetings, when they write memos, when they have personal conversations, when they're in meetings. These are all opportunities to leverage paying attention to continuity. I had one leader who got this. They he just got it, right? And so every time that he had a conversation, he brought up continuity. When he was yeah. in meetings, he said, what do we need to do differently? And what do we need to keep doing? Like that became his mantra. And it changed the organization because he had a, a rapid cycle, a, a, a rapid cycle um, strategy. And then he had a rapid cycle implementation. Everything with this guy was about speed. And so rather than just getting that in people's heads and making them think about speed, we also went back to what's the tried and true that we need to keep our eye on the ball for. And, mm -hmm. and it made a huge difference in their performance because that's, it's like reality. You may not pay attention to it, but these paradoxes exist. Continuity and change doesn't go anywhere just because you're not paying attention to it. You may end up overpaying attention to change, underpaying attention to continuity, and you'll pay a price for that. What I'm telling you is, hey, there's an investment you can make. Again, paradigm shift, right? It's what you talk about and focus on, but you could make a shift that can shift your ROI significantly on that change effort by paradoxically paying attention to continuity. Yeah, and, and I love that. And what I particularly loved, and I'm, great, I'm glad you brought it up in that story, is that importance of whenever you talk. Because I'm the same, like, I'm enthusiastic about change. I'm going to encourage people I'm working with to evangelize the particular changes that they're committed to. And that was, a, you know, that was a, a real learning from your book, was it? Well, hang on, maybe there's a lot of value in as well talking about right. continuity. It's a, definitely what it's an as well. Definitely an yeah. as well, Richard. Yeah, no, I loved, I loved that. Um, the, the other the other thing I wanted to highlight and um, is is this quote my favorite quote from the book uh, which I know isn't from you you've taken it from yourself somewhere else but the best way to understand a system is to try and change it and this is um, from your fifth lever start with impact follow the energy and this was this was a kind of challenge to me right because because you say you know and you're right that almost every change book tells you that if you haven't got the buy-in from the top, then you, you kind of might as well give up, right? Because because it's not whatever you try and do is ultimately going to peter out unless you've got the you know the backing uh, from the top. Uh, and to be honest, to a large extent, that's been true of my own experience, right? There's a, there's a kind of a limitation to how far you can get when you don't have you know the top level sponsorship. But but you reject that idea in the book, so yeah, could you could you expand on that? Yeah. So um, I'm not against senior level support, right? So I, 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 I'm going to start with that caveat. <laughs> but what I have found is that you can start where the system is ready to do the work, right? So start where you can have impact. And, and sometimes you go in and you start where um, it's going to be hardest to make progress. That's going to be impact. Sometimes you go where there are what people call early wins and what I call strategic wins. Because getting an early win that doesn't matter to people doesn't count. So you figure out where can we work that will make a difference for people, make a difference for the company, make a difference for the customer. Start work there. Now, here's an example of what that looks like in real life. I got a phone call from an organization. It was a, a, um, a telecommunications company, and they were shifting to providing cable and internet and telephone service 
all together. They were going to bundle it. And this was new, right? And they were going through deregulation. I got this phone call and the woman said to me, we have a 10,000 person organization. We just laid off a thousand people. We're going to have a problem solving meeting around how to deal with this issue. And I said, okay, well, that's interesting. I, I don't, I, I'm not an expert in problem solving, but I know enough about it. And I said, well, how many people are coming to the meeting? And she said, well, we've got 80 signed up. Now I've worked in large groups before. And when I say large groups, I've had a thousand people on the floor of the New Orleans Superdome for three days in a decision-making meeting, right? So I'm comfortable with large groups. I was one of the pioneers in working in that arena of change. And I said to her, I'm not sure that's gonna make a difference for you. 80 people, 10,000 organization, problem solving, laid off a thousand. When you do the math on that, it's like, this is probably not gonna solve your problem. But I thought about start with impact, follow the energy. Mm -hmm. So I said, yes. And I went there and I met with the leaders of this part of the organization. And the first thing they said was, we understand you're disappointed there aren't enough people. And because they had my reputation of this large group stuff. And I said, well, I'll tell you this. I said, I don't think that this is really going to make the difference that you need. And so I, I, I left, I did the planning with them and I got back and uh, for the event and there were 300 people that had been invited. Now this is better. This is probably still not going to solve their problem. But we're gonna we're gonna you know take our our sledgehammer and make a bigger dent in the door because now we got 300 people from all parts of the organization. So we went through this day of problem solving with problem statements and Pareto charts and the seven tools of quality, and we went through all this work. And at the end, the CEO came into the meeting, and we have a video that we made of the meeting. And there's a picture of him, right? Not with sound on, music playing, and him going. And he was saying, wow. And what he was saying was he could not conceive that 300 people could work interactively and come up with productive solutions. So they went ahead and implemented things. And in the areas in which they did the work, by and large, they, they made improvements. But what was interesting was the CEO, took this on in a different way. And he called a meeting of his executive team, which I was invited to, and he said, look, I think we can tackle this a different way. What this led to was first a 500 person meeting to divine their mission, vision, and values. And then they said, look, that's not enough. The design team for this said, that's not enough. We've got to go further. So they had a second meeting of 800 people to look at how do we make the mission, vision, and values real day-to-day -day in our organization. And what started as an 80-person problem-solving meeting evolved into a two-year change effort that was written up in Business Week and Fortune as a story about how much they changed. And they were their purpose was to bring strategy, strategy and behavior in sync, right? So that was what they wanted to do. And they had, were an old sleepy organization and a regulated business. So they had like a war room where at 5 a.m. the executives would meet every day. And if there was a competitor's move, 
the day before, they would decide what they were going to do in response to it every day for the first six months. Now, this is radically different behavior for this organization. And one of the guys who there's in the book to a story about a guy named Joe who stands in the doorway while we're doing our planning and is not on board, right? And he at lunch comes and sits down next to me and he says, I'm going to participate in the second half of the meeting. We literally said, Joe, come in. He had one foot in and one foot outside the change process. I mean, it's like the metaphor took on real meeting. And I said, why do you want to join again, George, uh, Joe, into this meeting? And he said, this is different. He said, we're, mm. we're planning what we're going to do ourselves. Nobody, we used to have things that got rolled out, but really they got rolled over us. And what we were using was the lever design it yourself. We were saying, look, you're a unique organization. Here's some stuff that we know. You have experience and change. There's past experience in every organization and change. If you pay attention to that, you learn from it. And so he was impressed. He said, look, I didn't know that we were going to have our voices heard, not only in what the organization looks like, but in the process, the roadmap we're going to use to define that. And so Joe joined the team because of that lever. And he ended up having a champions group as part of this. He and another fellow did a video and recruited people to a change champions group in the organization. And this was a guy who had one foot out, one foot in, was belligerent even at the beginning of the meeting, and now he's leading the change effort. So this whole idea about start with impact, follow the energy, again, I go back and say, this is probably not a good place to start. Wouldn't it have been better to get the senior leadership team together and figure this out? At one point, the senior leadership team said, after I met with them, well, couldn't we get the Hartford Civic Center and get a th- 10,000 people into the meeting at the same time, get the whole organization working on this? And we thought about it and said, well, we're going to counsel you to do something else. But that's the level of commitment they had once they saw a new paradigm and they saw they could design it themselves. I had done that before. I've never done a 500, 800 person meeting with that work being the way it was, because every change effort has to be unique. The organizations are unique. The issues are unique. So why do we pull out the same 10-step process and use it in all of these organizations? Why not give them the freedom to be able to make changes? Now they can start with that 10-step process. And if that's right for them, then they should use it. But Mm. in my experience, most cases, when you give people the freedom they start making changes. They start making shifts. They, they understand their organization. So think different people get involved than would have. And this is where I think the organization takes charge and ownership. We own what we help create. And if they come in and create their own change effort, they're going to have ownership over it. Right, right. Yeah. And that makes total sense. And, and so I think I, my interpretation of what you said there is in terms of the start with impact, follow the energy is that it, are you saying that in the end you're going to need to get the senior leadership but if you can start make an impact catch their attention at least some of the time that may be a way that you can get them on board is is that right yeah well the thing is is that when something's successful people pay attention yeah. so if you start with impact you look where there are possibilities and it could be like i said and, the, and there's a team a design team cross-section of the organization that makes this call, 
whether you go after the strategic wins that you can achieve early or whether you go after the tough stuff that people will be impressed by. But when you get positive results, people pay attention and those people end up being executives. Now, sometimes it's right to start at the top. So again, like I said, I'm not against that. But if you don't ask this question, where is there going to be the greatest impact? I think you're making a mistake. I think that you need to look at the impact and then follow the energy. You may have a roadmap for your change effort, but certain people are pulling you in a different direction. I I worked with the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation, 50,000 people, and they were changing their uh, point of care, uh, who was involved in that and how they were going to become a patient-centered organization. And we had this laid out, you know, sort of a healthcare institution by healthcare institution. I think they, they had like 20 hospitals and eight urgent care centers, right? And this is, this is 50,000 member organization. So we were going to kind of march through the hospitals and then teach people in the organization how to do this. And they would go hospital to hospital and then, you know, urgent care to urgent care. And we got to the meeting and we said to them, look, who wants to go first? Everybody raised their hand. So we were like, okay, we're not going to go hospital to hospital. So what we did is we came up with this plan where we could get five institutions together in a larger meeting where they could get started on their efforts and then take what they learned back to their institutions and start doing that work in the institution. So now what we did is we got it done in, you know, uh, a fifth of the time, because what happened was, is that you get five, then you get another five. So we had four of those meetings and the urgent care were included in them. So we got a lot more people started and didn't get as far as we would have had we gone all with the one institution, but we worked on many fronts at once, which I talk about in the book, is that working on many fronts at once means that everybody's moving forward. And like in your example with the, with the bank, they can teach each other as they go because they're going down the same path to become a patient-centered organization. So that was a develop, design it yourself opportunity because if we would have said, uh, sorry, to 19 of those hospitals, we're going to start here. Can you imagine the uproar that we would have had? So what mm-hmm. we did is we sat back and we said, all right, well, given now the circumstances that we know, we thought we were going to have problems getting people to sign up. How are we going to corral these people to get on board and do it? And everybody wanted to. So because of that, design it with impact became work with five, right? And the energy was in the whole system. So bring another five in and have the first five do their lessons learned and teach those to the next five. So this is all about finding out how to be successful. Where is faster, easier, better results? And we're going to get that by applying the leverage one way or another. Yeah. And there you've got you, you, your, your face. You've got this, this wall of energy, right? So if, you, if you're going to split that down and sequence it out, you'll you're going to kill the energy at some level. So yeah, you're being consistent with that principle. Go And, and end up with, with a bunch energy. of angry people. I mean, they right, would have been yeah. angry, upset. I mean, I, like I, ha- I still yeah. remember where we were in the room and I remember where they were. And I, and I had a, like, I got scared a little bit because they were like, 
I want to go first. I want to go first. And I was like, oh dear, what? We don't have a plan for that. What are we going to do? Okay. What does a consultant do when they don't know? Call timeout. Yeah. yeah so yeah. we were like, we're going to get back to you with another proposal next week that's going to be focused on how you're going to do this in a different way. And because yeah. of that, we were able to figure out through creativity some different way to do it that worked better for the organization. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love that. And the other thing that's coming to me here as well is like this, this idea of the large group. So something I've taken a big interest in recently is this, you know, the importance of embodiment, right? And uh, as individuals, the extent to which I can be embodied in my commitment or my stand, you know, and, and this is, pertains to leadership, you know, um, change work, whatever it might be. But I'm, I'm just wondering, and the link I'm making in my head here is, if you've got a large organization that wants to set a new commitment, a set of commitments for itself, if it's, if it's trying to articulate that with just like 12 people or something at the top of the organization, you could argue metaphorically that they're not being embodied in that commitment because they've not brought in individuals from across the organization. So if you want to make an enterprise-wide change and you're only consulting you know a handful of people about it you're not right. you're, you're not really dealing with the whole entity the whole body there and then and then we expect people to get on board and change and care about what we're doing and it's like it's unreasonable i mean if you just step back with common sense it's like you're working with this small team this task force and they're coming up with all these ideas and then they roll the ideas out and People are like disconnected from them and they don't jump up and run with them. And the people working on that task force are like, well, what's wrong? Why isn't this work? This is the right answer. Yeah. Right. I got I got what I got another story. I'm filled with these stories. So I, I apologize, Richard, for that, because they take a little I bit of time. The but there was a, a book written years ago. Now, Tom Peters and Bob Waterman wrote In Search of Excellence. Right. And, and in fact, when I was getting started in my career, that was the Bible. Right. It was some amazing stuff. And Tom Peters these days is still very active and, and has gotten very human centered. I've listened to some podcasts and I, and I encourage people to listen because he's so passionate about people and that they matter and why they matter. And so anyway, going back to the In Search of Excellence book, Bob Waterman, who was kind of quiet, of the two, wrote a book called The Renewal Factor. And in The Renewal Factor, he tells a story. And they were working with a Japanese bank, and he was with McKinsey at the time, and they did all their research, right? They gathered all their data. This was about winning market share. And they figured out the strategy, and they went to the leadership team. This is called the Jomukai in uh, Japanese. And they went to the Jomokai with their answer, and they explained the whole thing. And the Jomokai said, we like it. We'd like you to go out to this region and share it with these people and see what they think. And the McKinsey guys were like, but you've just agreed to it. We agreed to it. Why can't we just implement it? And they said, please go to the region. We're paying the bills. So... Off they went to the region. <clears throat> they tested it with a bunch of people in the region and everybody agreed. So they were like, okay, back to the Joe Mokai. We tested it with them. Everybody agreed. And the Joe Mokai said, we'd like you to go talk with this region. 
And the McKinsey guys were like, this is ridiculous. Like, why are, why are we wasting your money? And they said, go. Now this happened three, four, five times. They sent them out and they got the same answer. The same answer, this is good. And then they finally came back to the leadership team and the leadership team said, we approve it, let's move forward. And this is in the renewal factor that Bob Waterman wrote. He said the very next day, market share started to increase. Now, this is like some weird synchronicity that it happened to match that way. But what was happening is people were starting to behave in line with that new strategy mm-hmm. as they heard it. So the change effort was taking place even as McKinsey was moving from region to region because it made sense to these people. They were like, well, why don't we do business this way? Now, Waterman ends the thing by saying, this is why implementation is such a bitch for American companies. That's a direct quote. He's like, we don't do things this way and we fall down in implementation. It is always the place. The plan may be perfect and implementation sucks. And there's a reason for it. It's because you don't go to region one, two, three, four, five. You don't engage people in that organization. You're going to have a tough time trying to make a difference. And, and that, that was written, I mean, In Search of Excellence, I think, came out in, in uh, 81. This was probably in 83. It didn't get the attention that it needed. But I remember this story from the renewal factor. And it's like, look, if you seriously engage people, and not for show. Don't don't do this to say, well, we showed people it, you know. You got to listen to what they're saying and be willing to make changes to what you're doing based on it. You can't fall in love with your solution. You have to fall in love with the process of engaging people and coming up with the best solution. And and odds are you probably didn't get it all right. So you got to prepare yourself and be willing to make changes. But if you are and you go out and you're sincere and genuine, you, you will earn the, the discretionary effort. You will win the hearts and minds of people because what you're saying is we care. You yeah. matter, right? Your voice counts. We're doing this because we trust you. All of those messages are great messages to get. If you tell me those, I'm going to run through a brick wall for you because I'm committed. That's how you gain commitment. It's not through, you know, uh, prizes or or slogans or uh, decrees that you make to people. We don't respond to that, but we respond no. to being invited into a process that matters, so that we can make a difference. And one of the levers is called give opportunities to people to make a meaningful difference. And if we find more and more people in the effort that can make a meaningful difference, that's a good thing. I had, I'll tell you, it's very funny, Richard, in this book club that I joined the other night, this woman said, what do we do if like more and more people want to get involved in what we're doing and and it becomes like unmanageable? And I smiled and I said to her, look, the best case scenario you've got is everybody in the organization wants to get involved. Now you've got the best problem in the world because you've got literally everybody in the organization wanting to help you. I said, now it's time for a little creativity, but 
what a problem to have. I said, so if more and more people want to get involved, put your arms around them. Find ways for them to work in smaller groups. Find ways, ask them how they could best get involved. We often don't even trust the people to come up with the answer. And it's like, if you're stuck, ask for help. And the people who want to get involved, they'll come up with creative ways that they can make a difference. This guy, Joe, that I told you, this change champion thing that he did, it didn't exist before he came up with the idea. But then people started to join that and they got they got badges that they could put on their on their wall and things that they then were accountable for. When people had questions about the change effort, they were responsible for getting answers. They didn't have all the answers, but they got answers and they gave them back to people. So Joe created a way for many people to get engaged. And this woman at the book club was like worried about having too much participation. And I was like, boy, this is an easy one to answer, right? Yeah. Sometimes you get questions and you're stumped. And I was like, boy, you've got the problem you want. Celebrate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, and, and I think that's because we have this tendency, don't we, to, to want to create a plan in our minds. And then, when some, and, then we're, and then when we're faced with a challenge to that plan, our, often our first instinct is, well, how can I keep the plan on track? And what's great about what you're offering here is like, well, how, actually, maybe there's another way to look at the problem and, and not ask yourself, is this going to disrupt the plan? It's like, how do I go with this energy? Like, how do I follow the energy? Exactly. And, uh, you exactly. Know, for example, right? But yeah. And the first um, time, it'll, it'll take a little courage, right? The first time, mm. it'll take a little courage because you haven't done it before. But that's okay, right? But if you trust the process... And if you trust the system, if you trust the organization, people want to do well. People want to succeed. People want to win. And so they're going to give you their best thinking. And if you have to take a detour on that path, you do have to let go of some control. You do have to, as a person, right, because we are people, you're going to have to change some of your belief system and and go with the flow. And the flow will take you. Trust me, the flow will take you. I've told leaders, I said, look, you guys better be ready because this organization is going to change and it's going to change fast. And you may get trampled if you're not moving. So it's really important that you lead this effort, which means getting out in front and being two or three steps ahead of the organization, because otherwise you're now going to have another problem to deal with. And some of them are like, yeah, we've tried to change this organization for years and nothing's happened. So, you know, we don't believe you. And those are the ones, it's like running with the bulls. Is it, it Pamplona? I've, that I've, done, I've done that. I did that. You know, my You've trenches. done it. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> and I made it. And the big with, thing with running the bulls is you, you have to get through the doors, you know, in, into, the, into the arena, like, uh, and not get trampled. And I made it through the doors. So, uh, <laughs> That's my right. so that, story. <laughs> this is so this is exactly what it feels like for leaders when they're changing. If they don't get on board, they're going to be running like you did in front of those mm. bulls. Mm. And, you know, God, God love them that everybody makes it. But it's like, why take that chance? Why not prepare yourself for a best case scenario? And it, it may not be terrific, but I can promise you, if you follow the levers, it's going to be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, okay. This is, I feel like I've been in a masterclass. It's been absolutely awesome, Jake. You know, I've, I've really appreciated it. Um, 
Yeah, and we've just touched on, of course, some of the leaders uh, levers here. You know, that there's more more in the book. Um, yeah, for, for people. Um, so yeah, yeah, go go buy the book. Uh, you mentioned there's some some courses and packages you offer as well. Where where would people find those? Yeah, so um, there, there's a few things I'll mention. One of them is a free ebook on my site. So if you go to jakejacobsconsulting.com, there's an ebook that's called 27 Ways to Achieve Faster, Easier, Better Results Immediately. And what's in that ebook is for each of the levers, there, is, um, there are three or four action items that you can do immediately. All right, so let me give you an example of one of them. One of them is if you have somebody resisting your change effort, go to that person and ask them what their issue is. And then together, see if you can do something to resolve that issue. So it's like, put the book, put the ebook down and go take action. So that's, that's one thing. I also, I mentioned earlier, I developed a, a companion program to the book. And you can take this before, during, or after reading the book. It's not going to matter. It's five modules. It's about a half an hour a day. You can do it in a week. And it has little lectures from me. And then it's got handouts that you can use to work through. And at the end of that program, you will have one clear action that you are confident in that you have implemented based on the levers to improve your change effort. So that's a companion program and that's available on the site. You can click something, there's a brochure for it. So you could read through and see what you're getting. There's another program that I've got called Do It Yourself. And eventually this is gonna be a video program, but right now, I am doing it personally. And what yeah. this is, is it's a 10 session program and there's an intro and a close. And then we spend a whole session on each lever. And each lever we look at, well, what assumptions do you need to hold for this lever to work for you? What kind of questions would you ask if you were using this lever? What kind of tips and advice do I have for you as you're using this lever? And we'll go through each of the eight so that you'll really become a master at using them and using them together. There's another part of the program where we look and we say, how can we integrate these? And there are three or four case studies. In the book, there's one small case study to give you an idea. In this program, there's three or four complex ones that we work through. And then there's one other program that I'm calling a group consultation program. So a leader in their team, or leaders of different change efforts in the same organization, because often they need to get connected with each other, right? Or leaders from different organizations and different change efforts. But what we do is we meet every two weeks and I do coaching with each of the people in the group and they can coach each other. And then there's a curriculum. So I'm also teaching about the levers. And then we've also built in an always on space on the web where you can post your questions that I can put up uh, articles, answers, whatever it is, but there's a common space that everybody can learn from everybody based on the questions they've asked. And there's another thing that, I, that I'm offering now, Richard, which is called just-in-time consultation. And I was helping a friend with something and they said, you should offer this. And I said, offer what? And they said, well, I call you and immediately we go to work on my issue 
and we resolve it and I'm able to move forward. And that's really valuable. So what I've also put in place is this just-in-time consultation. What this means is that you text, email, or phone call me, and within 24 hours or less, we will be working on your issue. And we will resolve your issue so that you can get moving on whatever your change effort is. So I'm like a coach on your shoulder. And as soon as you need help, I will be there with you. And it's one of the things, you know, something, I have a bad sense of direction. I, I, I can't find my way out of a paper bag. But solving complex organizational problems quickly, that I can do very easily. So that's set up. So these programs I put in place after I wrote the book because I thought, you know, the book is helpful, but how do we help people take the next step and the step beyond that? Because mm. what I want at the end of the day is to create these leverage organizations, to create organizations that have this as a way of changing that they can adopt and the whole system then can start using this approach and benefit from it. Wonderful. Okay. Well, that sounds like a whole host of, uh, of great options for people uh, yeah, who, in, who are inspired by, by this conversation uh, and, and the book if they go ahead and buy it. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jake. And we'll put, we'll put a link yeah, to your site that you mentioned in the description for the show. So great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it's been awesome. <laughs> I've loved it too. I really appreciate the time and the opportunity, Richard, and the questions, very good yeah. questions. None that stumped me, but a few that made me think really hard. I like that. Okay. That's great. Good. All right. Well, well thanks once again and uh, enjoy, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.